wow. It's been a while, huh, guys? Many of you wanted to hear more from me, so here I am once again. It's always a pleasure to tell stories about my experiences and teach you some new things. Originally, Swamp Dweller and I decided that I would write 10 separate letters for the channel, but those went way better than I think either of us expected. I also have a lot more that I can talk about, so I wanted to write in again. Serena, my family, and I wanted to thank each and every one of you for your support. My nephew has had a great time going through all of your comments on each video, and I do my best to read them all as well. So as always, please leave any questions or feedback in the comments. I will try my best to reply to them in the following letters. This one is going to be long, so grab a snack or a drink or something along those lines. Alright, let's get into it. Before I go much further, let me take a quick second to reintroduce myself and talk a bit about of what I'm writing here. If you've listened to any of my previous letters, you'll probably know most of this. But for those who haven't, well, hi. Some basic info about me. My name is Sam White Owl. I turned 48 last year, and I am originally from Oklahoma. My dad's side of the family is black, and my mom's is Cherokee, which is where my name comes from. If you'd like a little more detail, I talk about myself and my job in the very first letter about Sasquatch. I belong to a group most simply known as the Hunters, capital H. To put it simply, our organization deals with cryptids, or monsters, to maintain balance in the world. To put it simply, and to say it bluntly, it sounds ridiculous and silly, I realize, and I will be the first to tell you that our tasks often feel like a bunch of nonsense, or like a bad movie. But Hunter's work is necessary for the protection of humans, monsters, animals, and all other living beings. It's not glamorous or pretty or clean, and in fact, it's usually terrifying and painful. But in the end, we just do our best to help when and where we can. I decided to write these letters to Swamp because I'd like to try to spread the word about these things that go bump in the night. The Hunters, to the best of my knowledge, have never made any sort of major public outreach effort, especially not in the modern era. Ever since the US and European Industrial Revolution, ironically enough, it was right around this time that knowledge and belief in the existence of monsters began to dramatically decline in these exact locations. Since I'm from the United States myself, and since most of you listening probably are too, I think it's important to give you all some information about cryptids. Even if you are aware of their existence, and even if you're from somewhere outside of the United States or Europe, you should still know about the creatures we share this world with. Knowledge is the first step to safety and peace. So let's start by dispelling one of the most common myths about monsters. Many people think that cryptids can only be found in relatively isolated areas, far from human settlement. This is only partially true. Monsters live just about everywhere. Most commonly, yes, they do live off the beaten path in wilderness areas and environments where humans typically do not live. However, humans may frequently pass through those areas, whether it's on a drive from town to town or a hike on a summer vacation. 
and many cryptids can and do live in and around cities, towns, and villages. In fact, in this letter, I'll be talking about some of those. Making this even easier is the fact that a variety of monsters can pass as human, and many choose to do so that live in our society. This leads nicely into the second common myths about cryptids that I'd like to debunk. I hate to get too obvious on you guys, but give me a second and you'll see what I'm getting at. There's a lot of problems with pop culture and media, but one of the main things is that they rely heavily on stereotypes, which only tell one side of the story. You see it all the time, stereotypes everywhere, yada yada. In the case of cryptids, media portrays them all as dangerous, bloodthirsty creatures. And in reality, this is sometimes true, but the problem with stereotypes is not that they aren't true, it's that they only tell one, very limited side of reality. So just like people from lower income backgrounds aren't thugs inherently, or street gangsters or whatever you want to call them, most monsters aren't flesh-eating slaughter machines. In both cases, the stereotype sometimes fits, but most of the time it's just not true. Cryptids are an incredibly diverse group of beings including everything from arachnids, like the Shushigumo, to the human-like Vila, and the reptilian Tanifa. To say that all of them are dangerous man-eaters is like seeing Jaws and then deciding that all fish and all animals in general will come after you and kill you. Like, yeah, sure, watch out for that chipmunk. He'll rip you to shreds. Anyways, hopefully you've got a better idea of why not all monsters are stereotypical dangerous killers. Just like many animals, most cryptids don't usually care about humans too much. Many even fear us, and for good reason. Nevertheless, even with all that said, there are many monsters that we humans fear, often also for good reason. These are the ones that capital H hunters like me must deal with. For the most part, the cryptids that I talk about are creatures that you should be very wary of and cautious of, if not fear. So yeah. I am a bit biased towards talking about the dangerous monsters, since there are many that can threaten you. I tell you about the dangerous stuff in the hopes that I can help you be even just a little bit safer. And at the very least, even if you don't believe a word I say, maybe you'll find this interesting. The least I can do is tell you some of my experiences and hope that you enjoy and heed my advice. It might just help you at some point. I also want to quickly point out that anything I say people say out loud in these videos, or letters, is almost all just my own recollection of what has happened. I obviously don't remember every single word of what people said, or exactly who spoke at what time, and so on. I've just got a very rough memory of it. In other words, anything that anyone speaks out loud is usually just my reconstruction of things from what I do remember. I'm essentially trying to fill in the blanks for you guys. It's sometimes easier than just summarizing everything and I've realized that it's also probably more interesting for you. Hopefully that makes sense. I have my journal, my memory, and other people's accounts to work with, so of course lots of the precise little details are going to be me filling in the details from what I can remember. Thankfully, I'm very good at picking up and remembering those kind of details, so I'm generally confident about what I'm telling you guys, and I try to tell you when I'm not. So, as Swamp says, without further ado... Let me start in on the main stuff I want to cover in this letter. I know that a lot of you enjoyed hearing about some of the different jobs I did with Heather, so I figured that I would go back to one of those. I think I've briefly mentioned this hunt, 
which was more of a large battle and a past letter. It made us and the other two hunters involved a little famous in the organization, at least for a little while. I know that I've talked about this monster in the past, just slightly. This time I'll be going into more detail about the cryptid known as the Chupacabra. Chupacabras are some of the most popular and yet some of the most misunderstood monsters among people in the Americas. First, as you may know, the name Chupacabra itself means goat sucker in Spanish, and this is an appropriate title. The name got popularized in newspapers and radio ports after one of the first major appearances of these creatures in the modern day. Before this, the hunters used the name Night Bleeders, or simply Bleeders. While some of us still use this term, mostly we tend to stick with the more widespread name of Chupacabra. To describe the physical appearance of a Chupacabra is a bit difficult, given that they have two main ways of movement, or two main stances that their bodies can take. We call these quadrupedal and bipedal, in other words, four-legged and two-legged. I'm a bit of a science geek, as you may have already known, but I'll try to explain this as clearly as possible, without getting too technical and confusing. The way that chupacabras switch between quadrupedal and bipedal stances must do mainly with their shoulders. Chupacabra shoulders have unique type of joints. It's a little hard to describe, but basically it's like a ball and socket joint that's set into a sort of track or groove. By locking the joint into place along certain positions in this track, chupacabras can move their front legs underneath their bodies to support them better for moving on all fours or to the sides for a better 360 degree mobility for when they stand on two legs. Like most animals, they move much faster on two legs and prefer to spend most of their time in the quadrupedal position. To give a bit more detail on what chupacabras look like, I want to be as detailed as possible, because again, they are somewhat tough to describe. They appear like dogs or cats when moving on all fours, and a bit like stereotypical gremlins when standing up on their hind legs. Hunters don't usually classify them as humanoid, but when standing on their hind legs they become close to that description. Chupacabras are mammals, but some parts of their anatomy resemble reptiles, like camazots. Chupacabra bodies are essentially hairless, except for their whiskers, and very thin patches of black, gray, or brown fur, no more than a half inch long, down their spines and on the top of their tail. The rest of their bodies are basically naked, covered with skin that ranges from a light gray to a nearly black color. They have short, thin nails, usually about six to eight inches long. Their feet are like raccoon paws, but with longer, thinner fingers and of course no fur. Each of these fingers end in a short, curved black claw. These nails are similar in appearance and function to the miniature black bear claws. Chupacabra nails are not so much for tearing or slashing as they are for pinning things down, grasping, and gripping while climbing. The back feet of chupacabras are long and vertically oriented, like rabbit or human feet, but a little shorter and with longer, more defined toes that end in small, black nails. Both the front and back feet of chupacabras have slight webbing between the digits, which make them efficient swimmers it might show evidence that they have aquatic part of their lifestyle and evolution. 
Chupacabra's front feet also have wrist joints like humans and other apes, which allow them to rotate which way their palms face. This is important when they shift between four legs and two legs. In size, Chupacabras are about as big as a coyote or a medium-sized dog. One of the most unusual physical characteristics of a chupacabra are their spines. These spines are pointed black spike-like plates between half an inch and an inch long, starting where a chupacabra's neck meets its skull and running all the way down to its backbone, down to the base of its tail, by flexing a special muscle called orbicularis, which is also found in hedgehogs and serves the same purpose for them Chupacabras can flatten or raise these spines. They do this to show different emotional states and as a defense mechanism. Lastly, chupacabras have some of the worst different emotional states and as a defense mechanism, they can be deadly. Lastly, chupacabras have some of the most horrifying faces of any creature I've ever seen. They have short snouts, only a few inches long with large, forward-facing eyes that look disturbingly human and alien at the same time. Normally, these eyes are very dark brown or black, and the whites are very rarely visible, much like a shark or a doll's eyes. Since I mentioned Jaws earlier, you might get that reference. As if chupacabra eyes aren't eerie enough, ordinarily, they also glow bright red when they reflect light in the dark. Chupacabra ears are big and pointy like a fox or a coyote, and are located near the tops of their heads, like most animals. Finally, their snouts and mouths aren't the toothiest, but they do possess oversized upper canine fangs, along with extremely long, practically prehensile tongues. Their fangs and tongues are specifically designed to obtain the main source of nutrition for chupacabras, blood. We'll get back to that in a minute. Now that you basically know everything about chupacabras and what they look like, let's talk about their lifestyle and ecology. We're about halfway through the background stuff, don't worry. We'll get to the stories right after this. Chupacabras are widespread and live in a variety of climates and environments. They are found in Puerto Rico and other Caribbean islands, most of the southwest United States, and down through Mexico, across Central America, and even South America. These days, chupacabras are mostly spotted in arid, low-desert areas, such as Arizona and the north of Mexico. These little guys are pretty adaptable, though, and they live in more humid areas as well. They tend to avoid deep jungle or rainforest, but they can be found in valleys, mountains, plains, and woodland across their species' range. Chupacabras are like coyotes and other social canines in their social structure and lifestyle. They sometimes live alone, but more often than not, they group up into mated pairs or packs. The largest pack that I can find in Hunter Records was 26 strong, but that's a wild case. Usually, chupacabra packs are much smaller, between 4 and 12 members. Packs have a wide range often hundreds of square miles, and within this are a few much smaller core areas which chupacabras defend and protect as home territories. They live in small dens, which they dig out of the earth like little caves. Chupacabra are highly intelligent and we use their mouths and their hand-like front paws to drag branches, rocks, and other things to cover their den entrances to disguise them. 
They sleep in these dens during the day and leave them some time after sunset to travel, socialize, and feed. Speaking of feeding habits, that's what most people know Chupacabra for, and that's what their name itself refers to. Along with vampire bats, actual vampires, and a small number of other species, Chupacabras are one of the world's few sanguivores. This is a term only used within the hunter organization, as far as I know anyway. And even then, it's uncommon, because it's so specific. Just like herbivores mainly eat plants, sanguivores only nearly get all of their nutrition from blood. This is a strange trait to develop in beings as large as chupacabras or vampires, but in any case, sanguivores have some special evolutionary features to assist them with their unusual lifestyle. Mainly, these features include fangs with a special type of saliva. The upper two canine teeth of sanguivores have developed into fangs, which they use to deliver precise bites to key areas, usually large blood vessels in the neck and throat of their prey. This maneuver creates two puncture wounds, which allows sanguivores to have easy access to their prey's blood without spilling or wasting much. Sanguivores drink this blood from the punctures and are helped in doing so by their saliva, which usually contains compounds called anticoagulants. These chemicals stop the blood from clotting or sealing the puncture wounds, so there is a constant flow of blood to drink. Chupacabras will also use their long tongues to help them drink. I'm almost done with the info dump, I promise. So, when hunting, chupacabras will isolate and put down a target. They're crazy strong for their size, and take care not to scratch their prey too badly or otherwise spill any blood while they grapple them and pin them down. Usually, the prey is shocked and well pinned to struggle or move much. Once the chupacabra delivers the bite and begins to drink, the prey quickly dies of blood loss, and each member of a chupacabra pack will take turns drinking from the body. The one who gave the killing bite gets their turn first, but after that, it's first come, first serve. There's no turn order like in another species. Chupacabras will drink until they're full, and it's possible for a pack to consume gallons of blood in one sitting. They'll often drink bodies completely dry to the point where the corpses will become pale and lose pounds of weight. If hunter records are to be believed, sometimes these courses have even visibly gotten smaller or thinner. Chupacabras tend to target larger prey like hooved animals and livestock when they're in packs, but they'll drink from just about anything including birds, fish, small mammals, and very rarely, even humans. Chupacabras don't normally mess with people though, that's very rare. They can go surprisingly long periods of time without drinking blood as well, and don't need much blood to survive, although they won't turn down a chance to drink if it presents itself. Because they're nocturnal, quite intelligent, have large home ranges, and are not terribly common, it's rare for humans to encounter chupacabra. Most so-called chupacabra photos are just cases of mistaken identity. Usually, these images are just coyotes, dogs, or cats with sarcoptic mange, which is awful stuff, but not a chupacabra. What people typically do see of chupacabras are the bodies of their victims, drained of blood through a single pair of puncture wounds. It's eerie, and it's no wonder the chupacabras have captured people's imaginations for so long.
Anyway, that was a ton of information. And thanks a bunch of you if you listened to all of it. Props to you. Now let's get into my personal experiences with chupacabras and talk about dealing with them. Growing up mostly in Oklahoma, I spent many years only a short drive or flight away from places where you can find chupacabra in the United States. In case you did not know, lots of people on my mom's side of the family are hunters, going back for many generations and at least a couple of hundred years. Before formally enrolling in the organization, our ancestors have been directly dealing with monsters for thousands of years. It's a big source of honor and pride for us. My mom was an active hunter for decades before she retired at age 55, which is incredible and not at all common in this line of work. I'm getting close to that age myself, though, but I don't want to push my luck too much. I'm about ready to stop myself. But back to my mom. We'll talk about a hunt I went on with her first, then the one with Heather I mentioned earlier. When my mom was an active hunter, her primary ports of calls for jobs were across the southern half of the United States. That meant she'd usually be in places like the Carolinas, Florida, Texas, and off in the states of the Southwest. She's taken lots of tasks in those two places, as well in Mexico and the Caribbean. A fair number of jobs involved chupacabras. Lots of the time, this involved tagging the little guys so that they could be tracked remotely. Putting a GPS tracker on a chupacabra can sometimes be a real pain because they have the intelligence to take off the tracking collar or pull up a tracking chip. The hunters don't always tag cryptids, but the big ones, particularly dangerous ones or big groups of monsters, we often try to. When my mom was doing most of her hunts in the 60s and 70s, modern GPS tracking systems didn't really exist. But later, when I was young, that stuff started coming around to the hunters. By that time, I already had been on a lot of hunts, always with my mom though. I didn't start hunting on my own until a little bit later. The first chupacabra hunt that I went on was with my mom in July of 1991. This was 30 years ago now, and I kept less thorough journals and notes back then, because I was a lazy and angsty teenager, so please forgive me if this story doesn't have all the usual level of detail. The summer had been reasonably calm as far as jobs went for my mom, so I remember that we had been home for a lot of that time. When I was growing up, I went to school just like other kids, but on weekends, during breaks, and over the summer, I would do more intensive survival and combat training with my mom and other members of my family and community. Part of that training included accompanying and helping my mom in her task where it was appropriate. So that summer, my mom got a call from her guide that was saying something of an apparently untagged pack of chupacabra had been picked up in southern New Mexico. I know this was a long time ago, but just to be safe, I'm still not going to give a more precise location than that. Hunters out on jobs or with local contacts were reporting tracks and a couple of drained corpses, pretty much all off the beaten path, but still within 15 miles or so of the reservation. It wasn't necessarily an immediate danger or anything, but we still wanted eyes on the cryptids. So my mom was offered the job of tracking down the pack and tagging them. I won't go through all the step-by-step -step details of this hunt, but my mom decided to bring me with her on the assignment, and we headed out for New Mexico with the usual assortment of gear. This time, however, 
we brought along two unusual extra types of equipment. First, my mom arranged a supply of trackers. These were basically little black boxes, only a couple of inches long, and maybe an inch or an inch and a half tall. They looked very similar to modern trackers or remote electric pet collars. I can't remember for the love of me if these were GPS capable or not. There were some other systems for location and positioning before GPS, so we may have been using one of those instead. In any case, these trackers were to be tied to cords made of flexible metal cord covered with padding. This construction made them strong enough to resist most attempts at removal, but comfortable enough to not bother the chupacabra too much. The less irritating the collars were, the less likely the chupacabras would be to try to take them off. Not a perfect system, but it was the best we had back then. Second, my mom and I both bought a set of body armor. I remember answering a question about armor in a previous letter, and I'll sum it up in a short answer. Basically, armor is designed to help you endure a hit and suffer less from one. But the philosophy that my mom taught me, which most hunters live by, is that the best way to take a hit is to just not get hit in the first place. This goes doubly so for cryptids. Many of them who have talons or fangs or fists that most armor just can't withstand. You'd have to be wearing a full suit of medieval's knight armor to effectively protect you from claws of a wolfman, for example. Even if you had something like that, it still wouldn't do much against something like being whipped by a several hundred pound tail of a Grootslang, or a Markapo, an angry yeti, or a Mapinguari. All of these things will knock your lights out pretty much no matter what you're wearing. Armor also slows you down since it's extra weight. Depending on the type, it can also make your movement and actions much noisier. Mobility and stealth are two of the biggest advantages in dealing with monsters, or in any combat situation these days, so I like to make as few sacrifices as possible in those areas. Lastly, armor makes you hot. In some climates, that's okay, but in the deserts of New Mexico in July, super heavy armor is inefficient and potentially even fatal. It's hard to hunt cryptids if you're passed out from heat stroke. I say all that to give you some context as to why most hunters don't usually wear much armor, if any. But chupacabras are fast. They're often pack hunters and will attack from many different angles, if possible. But, because of their small size, they are one species of cryptid that have claws and fangs that armor can be effective against. So my mom and I each had a very special set of light body armor for this hunt. These weren't full suits. Instead, we each had a few different pieces like football or lacrosse pads. Each piece was black and made of tough, layered fiber that I guess was a bit like Kevlar, even though it could have been something like polyester over leather. Whatever it was made of, it was very strong and pretty effective. Even though it was less than an inch thick, I remember trying to pierce through it with a knife and failing spectacularly. There were four pieces to protect the lower legs, two for the front halves and two for the back halves. Then, there were four similar pieces for the lower arms, and a vest protecting the front of the torso and the back. I think my mom had taken me to get measured and fitted for these a couple of years earlier, but I must have already had my big growth spurt, because my armor didn't seem to really fit well. When we got to New Mexico, 
My mom and I first did some interviews where possible sightings were. We tried to look for any sign of Chupacabra to see if we could get as much info as possible. From doing a bit of field work for a few days, we were able to get a good general idea of where the pack's core territory may be. From footprints and other signs, we also had a good guess that there were probably five members in the pack, two full-grown adults for sure, and probably three younger ones of similar ages. This meant that this was probably a family unit of two parents and their three offspring. Our next objective was to find the den of the five monsters, which is nearly impossible. If you don't know what you're looking for, and even when you do, it's an incredibly tough task. The most surefire ways to find an animal's home is to follow and track them right to it, or have another creature, like a trained dog, lead you there by scent. Unfortunately, my mom and I couldn't do either of those things since we didn't find a clear path of footprints, or have a scent hound with us. But what we did have was a rocky and dusty desert environment with few trees and not many ground plants. Because of Chupacabra's tendency to cover their entrances to their dens, it was most likely that they'd use some sort of stick and branch from the sparse bushes to do so. So my mom and I, in the daytime of course, looking for any foliage that looked like it may have been dragged or relocated. In rocky and dry desert terrain, especially during the many long dry spells without rain, footprints and other tracks can stay around for a long time before disappearing. Lucky for us that summer, we soon found quite a few tracks to work with. I found a bunch of footprints, including chupacabra prints in a small wash during an afternoon search. Washes are often called arios in the southwest and are basically ditches or runs where water once flowed. Many animals use washes to travel, since they form natural roads. This one ran along a rocky hillside, and after following the tracks down it, the chupacabra footprints veered off the side, out of the wash, and up the scree-covered face of the hill. Scree is loose surface rocks and dust, a bit like gravel with bigger pieces of stone. Towards the top of the hill was a clump of bushes, sitting on a bare patch of dirt. If you weren't looking for it, it probably never really seemed visible or out of place. But it was all alone, and if you looked carefully, there was a dark patch behind the leaves. There was the mouth of the den. It was well hidden, and all the scree on the slope leading up to it meant that anything coming near the den would be very loud as it walked by. My mom pointed out the den to me. If she hadn't spotted it, I don't think I ever would have. We couldn't just run up to the den with tranquilizer darks going ablaze, going crazy. That would give us away and maybe cause them to attack. Not to mention that some of them might just escape. Thankfully, my mom had just the thing to get the prey to come to us. She told me to wait there and keep an eye on the den while she went back to the truck. I remember telling her that she'd probably get there and back a little before sunset if she moved quickly. I took shelter in a clump of boulders on the bank of the Oreo that was opposite on the side. I did remember to write the weather conditions for this day in my journal later, so I could tell you that I was able to be in a position where the wind wouldn't carry my scent to the den. Here's what an 18-year-old Sam White Owl wrote for the weather that day word for word. Not too many clouds. Slight southeastern wind. Hot as hell. You know, just without the bleep. And there you have it, my friends. 
As the sun started to go down, my mom came back with a trash bag. You see, my mom is one of those psycho hunters who likes to keep her bait in her truck. The back of her truck contained a miniature freezer or cooler that she just jury-rigged so that it could be powered and kept cold in a few different ways. Before a hunt, she'd load up on appropriate bait for the occasion, just in case. Sometimes that was fruits or chocolate, but most often it was fish, meat, and or jars of blood, a lot of which. Most of it was totally rotten. Lots of the time, this stuff would be from animals that we ourselves or people we knew had hunted. Other times it would be from a local butcher or farm. And sometimes I had the nasty and suspicion that it was roadkill. Now, to be fair, a lot of hunters do this, but I never have. A freezer takes up a lot of room, and if it somehow dies on you without you realizing it in time, then it's going to take a lot more than a rearview mirror air freshener to get rid of that stench of rancid meat. For me, it's just a lot easier and a lot lower risk to buy and find bait as you need it. You can't always do that, of course, but the whole car freezer thing is just not for me. I have multiple freezers at home, and that's usually all I need. Anyway, my mom came back with her trash bag, which I soon discovered was holding half a haunch of venison and a gallon of deer's blood. You couldn't have asked for much better bait for the situation. The plan was to put down the bait where the wind would take its scent to the den. When the pack came to investigate and feed, my mom and I would take down the adults with tranquilizer darts. Hopefully the young would flee back to the den, where we could then get them as well. While my mom went to set the bait, I made sure to prepare all of our tranquilizer darts with the proper dosage of sedative. In this case, each dart would bring down an animal the size of a coyote or a medium-sized dog, which would be perfect for tranking a chupacabra. Meanwhile, my mom cut slits into the meat and poured the blood inside and on top of it. When she was done, she grabbed a few darts from me and went to hunker down behind a large rock a few hundred yards away from my position. By that time, the sun had started to set and turn everything a reddish-orange. We didn't have to wait long, because even before the sun had fully disappeared, the plants concealing the den began to move. For only a quick moment, I saw a little head stare out from the leaves, hairless, with short snout and huge black eyes. I vividly remember getting chills at the sight. The head disappeared, and a few moments later, one of the chupacabras emerged slowly from the den, pushing away the foliage with one of its hand-like front paws and raising its head to sniff the air. Soon, its oversized dark eyes must have seen the meat, because it gave a sort of gurgling sound and stepped to the side of the den on all fours. At the signal of the first chupacabra's gurgling croak, the other four began to cautiously exit the den. The three younger ones looked just like miniature versions of the first one, who I think we later found out was the father. If they were humans, the young chupacabras would probably have been around eight or nine years old. Not babies, but not adults either. I personally find most young adults or baby animals cute, but not these things. At any age after opening their eyes, Chupacabras look like goblins, or aliens, or horribly mutated dogs or cats. On that day, I learned that they are not pleasant to look at. No offense to aliens, but I just don't like how chupacabras look. The mother came out of the den as well, 
around the similar size as a father. All five chupacabras stood there for a moment, outside the den, raising their ears and sniffing the air. One of the parents pulled the shrubs back over the den entrance with their front paw. Much like other cryptids, such as Sasquatch or Crawlers, all this chupacabra behavior showed how cautious and wary they are. But of course, once they thought the coast was clear, they forgot about being sneaky. One of them hissed, and they started loping towards the meat on all fours, moving quickly. Only the young ones seemed to make much noise, and even then, it was probably only because they were going downhill on a gravel-like surface. When they reached the bottom of the hill, they all seemed very excited. The father arrived at the meat and leapt on it, pinning it down with his front paws as if it were live pieces of prey. Even though I was quite a distance away, I could still hear him slurping and swallowing as he took big gulps of blood from the gashes that my mother had cut into the venison. The mother and two of the offspring stood back to wait their turn, but one of the young ones sprang forward and also began licking at the blood coating the meat with a tongue that looked like it was a foot long. I raised my rifle and aimed for the dark, hunched figure of the father. My mom and I agreed that I would go for the adult first that got to the meat while she took down the other ones. The father's head was down, and I had an easy, clear shot on his shoulder, which I quickly took. As soon as the puffy red end of the trank dart was sticking out of the father's shoulder, I heard the low thunk sound of my mother's gun, and then everything started moving very fast. All the chupacabra scattered, with the three young ones bolting back to the den. I tried to reload and maybe take one of them down, but I was a little too slow. Before reaching the den, however, one of the three offspring gave a sharp squeal and changed course to run along the face of the hill. I saw the plume of smoke from my mom's second dart blooming from its rear thigh. It simply made it a few hundred feet before slowing down and falling to the side and then sliding down the hill a bit. I couldn't see the parents, but I trusted that they were knocked out somewhere. Now we had to tranquilize the two that had made it back into the den. My mom and I quickly climbed the hillside and approached the small opening. When she pulled aside the bushes, the den entrance wasn't very long, so I let her take the lead. She turned on the flashlight at the end of the rifle barrel and peered into the den. The pair of chupacabras inside began to hiss, and the sound was long and defensive, much like a cat. I saw their eyes reflecting bright red in the light, but I don't think that I could make out anything else from where I stood. My mom motioned for me to step back, which I did, before her rifle gave two shots. She sprang backwards, and the two young chupacabras burst out of the den. In hindsight, I shouldn't have jumped away. I didn't really realize that it wasn't going for an attack. The chupacabra tripped and tumbled down the hill, got up and took a few steps on its hind legs, and then collapsed. That made five sedated cryptids. After congratulating each other, my mom and I went about putting the tracking collars around the necks of each unconscious monster. I think I mostly did that part while my mom went around taking notes and measurements, things like age, sex, size, and health condition. Pretty soon all the collars were attached and all the necessary info had been collected and recorded. We put the chupacabras back into their den so that they would be safe until they woke up. I put on gloves so I didn't have to touch their rank, hairless skin. 
We even made sure to tuck them in by replacing the scattered foliage in front of the entrance. As for the bait, I'm pretty sure we just left it where it was. If a coyote or something else got to it before the chupacabras woke up, it didn't matter. The pack would wake up soon. So my mom and I collected our darts and our gear, left the area, and the rest is history. That was my first experience with chupacabras, and it was nice and clean. But if you have listened to my previous letters, you'll know full and well that hunts are often a lot messier than this. The one chupacabra hunt that I went on with Heather was, well, let's just say that it was one of those hunts where some improvision was required. This job came to our attention back when Heather and I were living in Oklahoma together. Towards the beginning of our relationship, before we moved to Washington, right from the get-go, I knew this was going to be a little bit more of an unusual task. Sergio called me with a, an interesting setup that immediately sounded like a recipe for disaster. Pets and occasionally livestock were going missing in a suburban area around a place in Texas. Without telling you where I'm talking about, I'll make it clear that it's not some small country town in the middle of nowhere. It's one of the biggest cities in the state and even the country. Some of my dad's side of the family lives in that area, so I've been there a couple of times, mostly when I was a kid though. So, animals are going missing and it's a little concerning, but that's far from proof of a monster. But apparently, a local hunter had been looking into an unrelated case when he had found chupacabra signs, and a lot of them, on some pasture land right outside the city. And... This wasn't just a single mated pair or a family unit. Sergio said that the hunter's report guessed that there could be as many as 10 chupacabras in that area. Apparently, this guy had found countless footprints of at least two dung middens, which are like latrines of poop piles and numerous drained corpses, mostly of birds and other small animals. The hunter, who had submitted the reports, had gotten back to his previous job, but now... Someone had to deal with these chupacabras. Someone who had likely to be me. There were a couple of things that were off about the situation, though. First off, none of these chupacabra were tagged. They probably weren't even a potential threat or problem before this, I guessed. But still, it just didn't quite feel right for such a large group to be untagged. Next, connected to this first concern... These chupacabras were acting very bold, which is almost out of character for their species. As I said before, chupacabras are intelligent and elusive. Why would they be risking getting so close to such major human settlement and literally snatching cats and dogs from people's backyards? It seemed almost desperate. Last, I think it was Heather who got me to realize that the missing animals were also a bit strange. Most of the time, chupacabras just find their prey and drink it on the spot. They don't usually drag their catches somewhere else, which is evidently what was happening in this case. Maybe the chupacabras were concerned about getting caught if they just drank from their kills in people's backyards. Heather and I didn't know, but we both knew something about the situation was not normal. We would find out what was going on later, though. I asked Sergio if there was anyone else he had signed up for the task, and he said no, but that there were a couple of off-duty hunters in the border areas who might offer to help to jump in. 
I thanked him and asked him to forward me the initial hunter's report, and then told him that I would get back to him once I thought things over with Heather. As usual, Heather and I looked over the report together, and that was when we thought about all the weird things that I mentioned before. We both decided that it seemed like a good job, though if we were aware that we might not have all the information yet. We worked together, and if we had another hunter or multiple others with us, we were confident that they would not negatively impact our usual dynamic. So Heather and I signed up for the job and made the drive south into Texas. I briefly thought about asking my family if we should stay with them, but I quickly thought better of it. I would have been short notice, and although I'm sure they wouldn't have minded and they probably would have let us stay with them, they also don't know about the whole capital H Hunter thing. Plus, my cousin AJ is a real goober, and I didn't want him telling Heather embarrassing childhood stories about me or something. Pulling off the road and sleeping in the car seemed great compared to that nonsense. During the trip, we got a call from a pair of fellow hunters named Anthony and Dan. They were close by and had evidently signed up to help with this job. Heather and I were both okay with that. The two of them had already linked up and were planning to head out to the site where the Chupacabra sign had been found. We all thought that that was a good idea and a good place to start. So when they gave us a location, we put that into the car GPS and adjusted course slightly to go that way. We pulled off the highway sometime in the afternoon and before long we turned onto some side roads. The buildings were a little scattered and spread out, but weren't too far from the limits of the big city, so this was a well-populated area. Not quite the country yet, but not quite the suburbs either. Our meeting point was right next to a residential suburb, though in a small lot that was thankfully empty except for a pair of trucks. Dan sat on the hood of his vehicle, talking to Anthony as Heather and I drove up. Dan was a white guy in his late 20s, with a cowboy hat and a short brown beard and a mustache. Anthony was a little younger than Dan, and was a medium-height, stocky Latino guy with short hair and a small goatee. They greeted us as we walked up, and I distinctly remember both of them definitely eyeing Heather, which made me feel a combination of annoyance and protectiveness. I wanted to roll my eyes, but I don't think I did. So the place we are told about is right up ahead. Somebody's farmland, basically, Dan told us, pointing off past the parking lot to a fenced-in grassy area. There were a few patches of trees there, which was a bit unusual. It wasn't a huge area, and we could see almost all of it from where we were. There was a house in what looked like a barn and some stables on the far side of the fence, and three medium-sized quarter horses were grazing on the yellowish grass. Are we clear to do an investigation? Heather asked, to which Anthony and Dan looked blank-faced for a second. After a pause that was way too long, Dan snapped his fingers, like he'd realized something. Um, no, we didn't actually ask yet, he said, obviously embarrassed. I felt like face-palming. To her credit, Heather was always more patient with people than I was. Then, maybe we should go to the house and ask, she suggested gently. Great idea, sweetheart, I said, only throwing in the nickname just so Dan and Anthony knew what the situation was. When we got back in the car, Heather started giggling. Great idea, sweetheart, she said in a mockingly deep cover. I never really called her stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just letting them know what's up, 
You know I get insecure, I replied, half-joking. Heather laughed, ruffled my hair, and told me that I had nothing to worry about, which I already knew, but was still good to hear her say. I think she said something like, we're exclusive, which made me laugh too. Our little group drove into the driveway of one of the houses that was next to the area with the horses. Heather and Anthony went up to the front door, which was answered by an older lady. After they presented the badges of our organization and told her that we were there and what we were doing, they came back and told us that the lady had given us permission to do whatever we needed on her property. She had apparently asked a lot of questions and seemed reluctant, but that was something that was not entirely new. She also said that she hadn't picked up anything unusual, but we could always return for more info later if we needed it. Just so we wouldn't scare the poor lady any more than we already had, we drove back to the abandoned parking lot and got ready to cross the long grass into the fenced-in area. Just in case, Heather and I put on our armor. Hers was an old set that my mom had gifted her. We also armed up, even though we still have plenty of daylight left. Living creatures can be unpredictable and it was always possible that any number of chupacabras could be out and about. I don't remember exactly what guns we were all carrying, but I was probably toting my Remington shotgun and everyone's favorite Frankenstein half-Taurus pistol, which I think I explained in an earlier letter. It's not entirely a Taurus, because it has a magazine, but it uses many parts of one. Heather usually ran with long hunting rifles, or another as her weapon of choice. Anthony and Dan weren't equipped with anything crazy, at least not at this point. The real nonsense on that front came later. Usually my combat tomahawk would be the most unusual weapon on the field, but Dan would certainly put that to shame once the action started. But we'll get there. Right then, Dan was jealous just Heather and I had sets of armor, which matched, no less. It gets better, I told him grinning as I showed him the underside of one of the pieces that protected my lower right arm. Fun fact, armor pieces that protect the lower arm are called vambraces. Lower leg pieces are called greaves. On the underside of all my pieces of armor, the people who had made them have emblazoned a style mark representing a barn owl in flight. If you weren't aware, the white owl part of my name refers to the barn owl. That part of my name isn't some ancient title passed down through the ages. It's a personal earth name that I was given after a vision quest, which is a whole different story. The white owl mark isn't a traditional thing either. I just made it up because it looks cool. It also helps me identify my stuff. I have a version of it engraved onto many pieces of my gear and a metal one as one of my set of charms that I wear on hunts in a medicine pouch. Most of them aren't colored white, though, so they won't give me away in the dark, which is where hunters spend much of their time. Heather also had a fox, her favorite animal, put onto her armor, which she also showed Dan. Damn, bro, you guys are all in on this, Anthony commented. Well, I hope you both are too, Heather said, and I remember Anthony and Dan nodding enthusiastically while still trying to seem dead serious. Yes, ma'am. And I'm more than ready to prove it if y'all are, Dan said. With that, we all fanned out and started across the tall grass toward the fence line, scanning the ground and our surroundings as we went. We got through the grass to the fence without finding anything noteworthy, then climbed over the fence and spread out a little wider to search this new area. The horses stayed a good distance away and watched us closely. 
After searching, it became clear that the horse's prints and scat could be blocking out a lot of chupacabra sign. The chupacabras were likely going to use this to their advantage. They likely were also going to have their dens in a sheltered area, so we decided to start checking the patches of trees and bushes one by one. At one of the first big stands of trees, we quickly caught the scent of rotting meat, and when we cautiously pressed forward, we came to a little patch of bare ground. Just like the report said, it was littered with traces of more than a few chupacabra. Yo, it is so goddamn rank right now, Anthony said at some point around here. He said it exactly when I knew we were all thinking it, so I almost started laughing, but I was able to hold it in. The scene wasn't too terrible, but the smell really was the worst part of it. The ground was pretty much just dirt, with a few bushes here and there. In the center of the area was a flat-topped heap of earth and matted dark brown dung all over a foot tall, an identical smaller pile sat off to the right rear of the clearing. Around the place where the half-rotted corpses of a few pigeons and squirrels and multiple domestic dogs and cats, both small and large, no doubt drained of blood. There was no entrance to a den that was immediately visible though, but it was bound to be close by. It had to be. You can often feel or sense if you're being watched or observed, and I think you can hone this ability over time. I've become sensitive to it over the years, and right then and there, it didn't feel like there were any eyes on us, but I might have been wrong. Usually, it's quite difficult to find animals, much less their home, but in this case, the legwork had already been done by the previous hunter, so we were very fortunate. Anyone see a den? One of us asked. It has to be nearby, but maybe we shouldn't push it right this second. They're probably in there right now. I whispered after a minute. People seemed to agree with me on this, and we concluded that we should probably back out and wait until nighttime. If we kept watch on the trees, we could potentially get a head count to see which way the chupacabras went and how many we were dealing with. When we'd all decided that this was a solid idea, we pulled back a bit. We guessed that the chupacabras would likely head in the direction of the highway in the main part of the suburbs, which was northeast, so we chose to keep watch from the northwest and southeast. The southeast was almost on the fence line, so Anthony and Dan kept watch from there, while Heather and I laid down in the grass of the northwest a few hundred feet away from the trees. Thankfully, there was no wind to give our presence away. We laid there for quite a few hours, journaling a bit and whispering. Like practically every other hunter knows, even lowercase h1s, hunting tends to involve a lot of waiting around, and this was one of those times. You really must develop a lot of patience to be in this business, but it makes it a lot easier when you're with people you love and care about. So in situations when I was with Heather, my mom, and nephew or my friends, the wait is at least a little bit more bearable. It's also usually not too hard to make a setup for the type of board game called Mancala which I learned to play in Turkey and Tanzania. You can use pebbles and chips of bark to make the pieces, and depressions in the dirt or grass as the board, so I always keep that as an idea for when I was hunting, and I had a partner, and we don't have anything to do. Just not usually when I have to keep a super close eye on something. After a while, the sun went down, and half a moon began to rise. Before it had fully come up, I caught some movement in the trees. I tapped Heather and took out the night vision telescope that I sometimes bring if I'm expecting to be on a scouting operation like this. 
Heather usually carried a small modular night vision scope on her rifle, so she was probably using that, since I'm pretty sure that she never asked to borrow my telescope. In the trees, I found what looked like a pair of chupacabras on all four, standing mostly still behind some bushes. Another one came up shortly, and it looked like they were urinating on what was probably one of the latrine piles. A couple of more came into view soon, but I couldn't see exactly where they were coming from. I whispered to Heather to stay put and started inching along the ground to the side to get a slightly different angle and try to spot the den. After changing viewpoints a few times, I finally saw a dark spot under the roots of a tree that was biggest in the little grove. I watched another chupacabra emerge from this hole, shake itself off, and pace over to the others. They seemed to be gathering northeast by the tree line, and trying to find a better vantage point. I'd stopped counting the members of the pack as diligently, but I remember seeing at least nine individuals from where I had found the den. As I watched, one of the bigger chupacabras set out from the trees, followed by the rest. Like we had predicted, they were moving across the area in a general northeast direction, moving with a trotting speed, which is the animal's version of a light jog. Because they had exited the trees almost opposite from where I was, I didn't have a great view of them as they went on their way. They were also on all fours and didn't move one by one in a single file line either, like some animals will. However, even with all that, I still managed to count 11 distinct monsters exiting the tree line. Once I couldn't see any more movement from the trees, I checked the time, waited for five minutes, then slowly crawled back to Heather, who was now crouching. The chupacabra had vanished into the long grass past the fence, so we stood and made our way back to where Anthony and Dan were, at that part of the fence line. I counted eleven. Did anyone else get something different? I asked. Fourteen, Anthony said, which made my heart sink a little. Thirteen, but I might have missed one, Heather admitted. Are you sure? I asked Anthony, and he nodded. I had not expected him not to be sure, but this still was not great news. That's a lot. Not a good number to take on in a straight-up fight, Dan said, and he was completely right. Fourteen was a lot, especially given how sly Chupacabra are known to be. Then there were still the head-scratching bits of weirdness that Heather and I had noted before taking on the job, none of which we had answers to yet. Why was every single member of this pack untagged? Why were they taking their kills all the way back to the den? And why were they using the city as their hunting ground? We can end this quick, people. I've got a couple of mines in my truck. All I've got to do is rig the den, Anthony started, but we all butted in to cut off. Are you kidding? You cannot use mines. You can't make this stuff up. Absolutely not, Heather said. Although she used some more colorful language than that, We'll have the whole city on us if we do that. But there are a lot of chupacabra, too many to tranquilize individually. We may have to eliminate them, I said. But now Heather turned on me. I don't think so. There's still questions that need to be answered here, she said. She wasn't wrong, but I was also thinking about protecting people now. We couldn't just relocate the pack, at least not easily. We have a chance right now. We can prevent any more bloodshed. We can just get rid of them here and now. I replied. Now, Heather got irritated. We may not even have to get rid of them. It would be hard to tag them and relocate them, sure, but we could do it, 
she said, which also wasn't wrong, but again, that would take time, and I didn't want to wait another night. There were so many chupacabra. Heather, how are you going to relocate 14 of them? They are literally in the city right now. They could be killing more animals or even people as we speak, I responded. I'll spare you with the rest of the argument, partially because I don't even remember, but it got heated. Both Heather and I got very passionate and our fight got quite intense. Hell, it's still like that with me and Serena from time to time. In any case, voices got raised, Heather's Irish accent came out a lot more, and things escalated quickly, as they can do when lives are on the line. At some point, though, Heather grabbed my hands the way she always did when she needed something from me. In the same context of this argument, I knew I had to take a step back, and the gesture calmed me down a bit. Sam, please, I need you to trust me right now, she said, looking into my eyes. Even in the dark, her gaze was always commanding, which was part of the reason I had fallen in love with her in the first place, and could usually get me to honestly give in to her. This time was no different. There was never a time that I truly doubted Heather's strength, courage, intelligence, or abilities, and as we would find out later, she would honestly usually be 100% right. We would indeed have our questions answered because of her call to wait. I groaned, sighed, and nodded, squeezing her hands in return. Okay, yeah, I trust you, I said, and she gave me a gentle, grateful kiss before pulling me back to Anthony and Dan, who had started retreating during our argument. Right, so here's what we do. Tonight, we stay and keep watch here until the little blighters come back. During the day, we get some sleep, and then tomorrow night, we follow the pack at a distance and get some more info. Where exactly are they going, and do they have a route? Heather laid out. We all thought that the plan sounded reasonable, especially since most likely we weren't going to be able to catch the pack this night. In hindsight, we could have tried to follow the chupacabras that night as they left, but we needed a solid head count, at the very best, to determine our best course of action. We always could have tried to backtrack their activities during the following day, but we were all tired and needed sleep, and to be on our A-game for the next day, we needed to rest. Two days straight without rest is never good for anyone, let alone a hunter who needs to be ready for combat or other activity. As it turned out, Heather's plan never came to fruition completely, but the first parts did. I wouldn't say that she made a mistake, because it was a solid plan given the information we had at the time, but it didn't entirely work out. We staked out the same positions that night and watched the Chupacabra pack return confirming that previous headcount of 14 in the process. Then, as the sun started to rise, we all reconvened. We decided to leave one person on watch by the den while the other three of us went back to our cars to get some sleep. Every hour, we would rotate out on watch, and we continued this until dusk. When the sun had almost completely set, Dan woke the rest of us up, and we all started to gear up. Oh my god, bro, are you kidding me? Anthony yelled at some point during this process, and I turned to see Dan pulling what looked like to be a military-grade M4 assault rifle from the back of his truck. This was just ridiculous. There's a reason hunters don't often use these types of weapons. They're cumbersome, they're hard to aim consistently, and they just blast through ammo like, an, like a firehouse. I didn't know whether to laugh or get mad, or be impressed that Dan was even considering bringing along that monster of a gun. Are you 
daft? Heather shouted, her accent coming almost as thick as when she had been arguing earlier. Listen, I just got a feeling about tonight, okay? Hell, I shouldn't even have to shoot this thing if we're just doing a recon, okay? But I've got it just in case, Dan replied. And he did have something of a point. Heather looked a bit exasperated, and through that unique combination of gestures and lip reading that couples and friends often use, we figured that we couldn't really do anything about it, and that we had to move quickly, given the time. Heather gave a flustered sigh. Let's just pray that one of our guides has already called the authorities and gave them a warning, or we'll have police all over us, Heather said, which we really shouldn't be worried about, but, you know, things happen. Then again, this was Texas, so if we weren't setting off Anthony's landmines, we just might be alright. As it turned out, we were going to be shooting sooner than expected. Since I said Heather's plan didn't work out all the way, I would say that it took us no more than 15 minutes to gear up and get ready for that night's operation. But chupacabras are stealthy, speedy, and sly. Apparently the pack had been on to us for some time and all it took them was 15 minutes to get into position for an attack. It's crazy that none of us noticed anything until it was far too late, but I guess that's what you get when you're not constantly paying attention every single second. I think we were all so eager to get going that none of us realized that, for 15 minutes, we didn't have anyone watching the nest, and that was a major oversight. When we were all ready to go, we started to head back through the 50 yards or so of tall grass between us and the fence. This was the area that I mentioned briefly earlier, where the grove of trees containing the den was, almost up to the fence line. So, we didn't have too far to go until we were back at those trees. The grass and weeds are untamed and thick, coming up to a little bit over your waist height. We were maybe 30 yards into the grass when I suddenly got a chill down my spine, and a tense feeling in my stomach. I stopped for a moment, and looked around slowly, trying to stay steady despite the sense I was getting. I was about to say something, and I just remember someone calling my name when to my two o'clock, I saw the shadowy grass behind Anthony moving. I yelled out a warning, but as I did, the dark shape of a chupacabra sprang up and collided with Anthony, hitting him hard enough that he stumbled and fell back into the grass. I broke into a sprint, since he was only about 25 feet away and in a very bad position, especially since he was unarmored. I had my shotgun. That was no use if he was pinned down. I couldn't risk shooting and having the pellet spread hit him. I also had my combat tomahawk, which would not be too easy to use with my heavy shotgun in my offhand. And there was no way I was going to abandon my main gun in this field of tall grass where I could easily lose it. All these calculations didn't occur consciously to me in that moment. I don't think, as I remember springing through the grass to the field to find Anthony on the ground, rolling away from a chupacabra that was trying to pin him down. I think he was using a second gun to keep the one at his face at bay, because he didn't shoot yet, and I don't remember his face being badly wounded. I swung the butt of my shotgun at the chupacabra by Anthony's head, knocking it backwards. The other two quickly bolted away in the surrounding grass, and I hip-fired after one of the paths of rustling plants. I heard a sharp shriek in the grass, and sudden movement stopped. One down. Maybe, anyway. I was in the process of helping Anthony to his feet, and Heather was coming up to us, when Dan shouted something and opened with his carbine into the grass. The classic rat -ta, 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 ta ta sound was incredibly loud, and I could still hear the shrieking and hissing cries of chupacabras, hurt, scared, excited, or all three, 
I got hella chupacabras over here, Dan shouted, which would have sounded ridiculous had he not been serious. I started moving towards him. Save your ammo, pick your shots. I called to him. He was reloading and didn't look like he had any clear targets. I know, I know. I'm trying to smoke them out. I just got jumped by like six of them, he replied, before firing three or four more blind shots and pausing. Everything was disturbingly quiet except for a light breeze and several dogs barking from somewhere in the distance. Let's pull back to the trucks, Heather said, a suggestion which I was very much in agreement with. I probably took one or two steps in that direction when I felt something snag my left arm, and all hell broke loose again. A chupacabra had sunken its fangs into my arm, which fortunately was armored for this exact purpose. The creature had yanked my arm to the side and I nearly lost my balance and fell. What I did lose, though, was my shotgun. It fell to the ground, but with a chupacabra trying to bite through my vambrace, I had more immediate problems to worry about. I swung my right hand around and punched the monster in the face, until it let go and stumbled back, blood streaming from its eyes. While it was staggering and at least partially blinded, I drew my tomahawk and slashed down at it. I cut down through its head and shoulder, sending blood spraying across my gloves in the grass, but instead of following up with another chop, I spun back around and looked for my shotgun. If I haven't already given you a good idea of chupacabra intelligence yet, then you might have a better idea when I tell you that one of them was crouched by my shotgun, using its hand-like front paws to grip the weapon and drag it away. Yes, this pack evidently knew that guns were dangerous, and they had been cooperating to disarm me, which they had done very well. They probably hadn't been counting on me having other weapons, though. So as I shouted some four-letter words and rushed with my tomahawk raised, the chupacabra with my shotgun dropped its cargo and bounded away into the grass. As I put away my tomahawk and grabbed my shotgun, I realized that pretty much everyone was shooting now. Trying to head back for the vehicles without letting their guard down and giving the chupacabras an opening, I started doing the same, firing here and there at the movement in the patches of grass that may or may not be chupacabra. I was almost at the edge of the grass when I saw something moving through it, maybe 20 or 25 yards away. Something huge, dark, and not a chupacabra. My blood ran cold, and Anthony called it out before me, saying what I was already thinking. Dogman! He screamed. Keeping my eyes locked on the huge form, I started backing up hurriedly. The enormous shadow was clearly moving mostly on all fours, like the chupacabras, but it was far too large to hide completely in the grass like they could. It was moving very fast, but not at, not at any of us hunters. I watched it rear up on its hind legs, swiping out with one heavily muscled arm as it ran. The blow sent the chupacabra flying with a literal trail of blood following in the creature's wake. The huge shadow dropped seamlessly back onto four legs as it rushed off to my eleven. But even in the dark, I had seen its pointed ears and its long snout for enough time to confirm that Anthony was right. This was a dogman, and that was not something we wanted to deal with. I heard a blood-curdling shriek and the dogman tossed its head, flinging some body part of a chupacabra that flew past me and spattered gore across the vest of my armor. The sound was one of the worst parts as the night air was filled with sounds of shrieking, gurgling, and hissing chupacabras. The low, heavy snarls of the wolfman, the dogman, whatever you call it, the rustling of the grass, and my heartbeat was pounding in my ears. The whole time I had been backing up, 
not daring to turn my back on the dogman, and at some point, I made it out of the grass. Around that time, the flashlight from somebody's gun caught the attention of the wolfman, which paused its rampage for just a moment, turning its glowing, crimson eyes in the direction of the light, and then started to head straight that way. I whirled to see Anthony and Heather at the edge of the grass around 50 or 60 feet away, with no sign of Dan at all. Anthony had the flashlight in his gun, firing at the dogman. Heather was kneeling and doing the same, but they were missing or not landing headshots because the monster was not stopping. I raised my shotgun and started firing as well, but I was only hitting the wolfman's back, and I was too far away from my shots to have any real punch or stopping power. I quickly picked up on this and started sprinting as fast as I could after the dogman, which had almost exited the grass. There was no way I was going to be able to get there before it hit Heather and Dan, but I might be able to help if they could just hang on. I was running, hoping, and praying that they could just hit one good headshot, when the whole area suddenly went bright with the high beams of a car. I was far enough away that I could just squint and be okay, but Anthony and Heather and the Wolfman all staggered back, each of them raising a hand to protect their eyes. I finally noticed the sound of an engine and Dan's truck drove in past Heather and Anthony, moving at what might be 50 or 60 miles per hour. The headlights had been the perfect distraction as the stunned and blinded dogman was now moving too slow to run. Dan's truck smashed into the cryptid head-on. The dogman must have grabbed the hood because it seemed to cling on for dear life, for just a second, and then it slipped under the car, which bounced slightly as the tires ran it over. I changed course and ran to the back of the truck, where the dogman was now rising to its feet. A sudden burst of assault rifle fire put a quick end to that, though, as Dan came around with his truck with his M4 and full auto. The dogman's head and chest were shredded apart in a few seconds, and its body fell backwards, where Dan shot a few more rounds into it for good measure. Then everything went silent again. And I think what happened next went something like, Bet you're glad I brought this now. Dan asked smugly after a moment, lifting his gun. I think I probably laughed, but probably more out of disbelief and gratitude than anything. I think it was mostly the truck. But sure, thanks, I answered. Naturally, the police showed up soon after this, but they quickly stood down once we showed them our badges. Incredibly, somehow only Anthony and Dan were injured. Anthony had been hit several times around the face and neck where he had fallen and Dan had twisted his ankle, breaking free from a chupacabra shortly after that. Had it not been for my armor, my left arm would probably have been severely hurt too. Heather, somehow, hadn't so much as been touched by anything. As Anthony jokingly noted, both brown people had gotten bitten, and we blend into the shadows better. Heather was so pale that she practically glowed in the dark, and she had gotten off scot-free. Maybe chupacabras aren't too fond of Irish blood. Speaking of the little guys... While Dan and Anthony went off to the hospital, Heather and I called in a cleanup crew and kept watch over the scene until they arrived. During that whole thing, we didn't see a living chupacabra. It was like the pack had just vanished, and as far as we knew, they did. And there hasn't been a chupacabra report from that area in quite a few years now. This was more evidence to support the theory or explanation that we put together and recorded in our post-action write-ups. To the best of our knowledge, here's what we think happened. The chupacabras we fought that night were probably from further south of the city, which is a significantly less populated area. They had never been tagged in this area because they hadn't been a problem. They likely weren't even noticed. 
At some point, it was that this dogman had driven the pack out of their home range and pushed them north towards the city. At this point, the chupacabras had to find food where they could, so they resorted to the most accessible resources, humans, pets, and livestock. They've been killing these animals and dragging the corpses away to feed on them in safety, protecting their kills and themselves from vengeful humans and the dogman, which had likely been stealing their kills. It's not entirely clear where the dogman had been at this point, but we guessed that it had found enough reliable food down south and probably pursued the chupacabra pack north to the city for some reason. It had probably been watching the pack for a good while, at least between the initial hunter's report and our arrival. Waiting for a good time to strike at the chupacabras, the wolfman really seemed to hate the chupacabras for whatever reason, because it had passed up the three horses and several other animals in favor of going after the pack. Evidently, all the blood and chaos of the night of the chupacabra's ambush had sent the dogman into a frenzy, and you know the rest. As for how the chupacabras caught onto our presence, I can only assume that one of us had been seen or smelled at some point. The pack saw us as a threat and decided to defend their new den. With the wolfman dead, though, it looks like they might have taken the chance to leave the area or maybe move back south. There have since been a few chupacabra reports near that area, and I'd like to think that those are the survivors from the Battle of the Tall Grass, as Heather and I jokingly named the incident. As a matter of fact, I hear that some other hunters have taken this whole story as a lesson for their students, apprentices, and trainees. It's not an example of great form or technique, but it shows the intelligence and unpredictability of some monsters, the potential fluid nature of a hunt, and the importance of thinking on your feet and adapting to different circumstances. Like Charles Darwin said, it's not the strongest or fastest or even the smartest species that survive. It's the one that is the most adaptable to change. And that night, we all had to adapt or die. Literally. I also hope that this story sets the record straight on what happened, for any hunters who might hear this. I've heard a lot of BS about this night. But this is how it happened, to the best of my knowledge and memory. At no point were Heather and I distracted because we were doing stuff in the car, or anything like that. The chupacabra that stole my gun did not shoot it at me, and nobody set anything on fire. I think the real story is crazy enough as it is, without any extra rumors and nonsense. So, there you have it. As for what you can do if you encounter a chupacabra, my advice is that what I've said about crawlers, honestly, you can just leave them alone and walk away in most cases. They aren't likely to attack you, especially if they are not inherently in a large group. So, I'll say that most times you could probably ignore them, and they won't be much of a problem. As general travel advice for going into the woods or similar out-of-the-way places, stay on the path or the trail. Take a weapon if it's legal and if you feel the need, even if it's just a knife or bear spray. Most importantly, bring more supplies than you think you're going to need, including a friend or two. Dogs are great as well. Getting lost is more likely to happen to you than any cryptid encounter, but it can be just as deadly. Knowledge and preparation are the first and most simple things you can have to keep yourself safe. Anyways, phew, this was a long one but I hope you found it both informational and enjoyable. I'd like to thank you for listening, especially for still here. I think it's been close to a year since I wrote the first of these letters to Swamp, and I really appreciate all of you who have listened to them. I have a good time writing them, for the most part, 
and it's helped me process even the more painful and bittersweet parts of my experiences, too. I'll be writing in again soon, I think, but probably not as frequently as before. I suppose I have to think about the things I want to share with you guys and do a bit more planning. From my previous letters, I was able to talk about some of the things that you guys wanted to hear. So let me put it out for you again. If there's anything you'd like to hear about, like a particular monster, place, or experience, please feel free to let me know in the comments. I really do do my best to read all the YouTube comments. I also have other hunters sharing their stories, like my nephew. So if I can't personally speak on a topic, I might be able to pass on the words to someone who can. I also really enjoy your questions, so ask as many of them as you want, and I might have an answer for you in my next letter. We can maybe open the next letter with a Q&A format of my earlier letters if you like. It's always nice to engage with you guys a little more directly in that way. I'm not sure what my next letter will be about. I know that earlier a lot of people were curious about my time in Scandinavia. I think it's because I've mentioned trolls on a few occasions. So, I might talk about my experience in Norway with a very nasty family of trolls, and even nastier group of humans. That's a dark and sad story though, so we will see. In any case, let me know what you'd like to hear about next, and ask any questions you might have. I'm not sure when I'll be back, but I'll probably write again sometime later. For now, stay safe and well, and thank you all so much for listening to me ramble on again. We'll talk more soon. This has been Sam White Owl, signing out.